Now we're back in Exodus chapter 2. And so if you don't have a Bible, we've got a couple of them around here. Um, the little New Testaments aren't going to do you any good because we're in the Old Testament. Um, so grab full-sized Bible and we'll be in Exodus chapter 2. Let me get there myself. Well, I listened to a sermon on Exodus chapter 2 just to prepare for today by a guy named Kevin DeYoung, Um, and he begins uh, with a great observation, just says that the greatest events in history turn on the smallest of hinges. The greatest events of history turn on the smallest of hinges. And I'm just going to totally steal his introduction because it was very good, but um, he told this story about how there's, I, I don't have names for you, but the king of Prussia is someone who... Um, has been basically, uh, some people think, responsible for World, World War I. A lot of people think that World War I was a very avoidable war, right? Well, he came into power in 19, no, 18, <laughs> 1888. And in 1889, um, there was Wild Bill Hitchcock and Annie Oakley were touring Europe doing their uh, Wild West show, okay? And I guess there's this part where um, Annie Oakley, if, you know, Annie, get your guns. She's like a sharpshooter. Um, Annie Oakley would do this part of the show, and she would say, do I have a volunteer to put a cigar in your mouth, and um, I'm going to pace off 10 steps or something, and I'm going to shoot the ashes off the end of your cigar, okay? And nobody ever did. It was part of the joke, and then her husband would get up and do it, and he was part of the show, and, and that's what they did. Well, the king of Prussia, who had just been king, I don't know if it was just like a macho thing, but that year... He um, stepped up and he said that he wanted to do it, despite the fact that his kind of secret security and guys who were guarding him told him, oh, I really don't think you should do this. Uh, he said, nope, I'm doing it. He was a big fan of their show. And he gets up there and Annie Oakley, she says, you know, she's like sweating profusely underneath her, uh, you know, leather uh, chaps and everything, wishing she hadn't drank so much whiskey the night before um, and her hand wasn't as steady as usual. And she pulls the trigger, and lo and behold, she knocks the uh, ashes off the end of the cigar. Everything's good. Well, years later, when World War I was happening, and it, he was a, a big player in it, she wrote him a letter asking if she could get a second shot, um, uh, basically saying, this time I'll hit the right part. Um, and so the thought is, what if her hand had slipped that day, and she had gone six inches behind the cigar and taken him out? Would World War I have ever happened? Okay? And so this morning, we look at a text that is humongous in the grand scheme of things for the Bible, for Israel, and it turns on the smallest of events, things that are happening. Okay? Um, before we get there, though, let's do a quick review. Last week, we said that Exodus um, is not a standalone book, that Exodus is like book number two after Genesis. We saw a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the first word in Exodus is and. And and the story continues, right? And it just keeps on going right into Exodus. And we saw in Exodus that God is demonstrating his faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham to make him a great nation, to make him fruitful and multiply, right? So we saw that in Exodus 1, uh, four different times, 
that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then we see that um, they're made into slaves and are made to work. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread. And then king of Egypt says, kill the uh, baby boys to the midwives, but they feared God and they didn't do it. Um, and God dealt well with the midwives and gave them families, and the people grew very strong. So this idea is just that God is continuing to be faithful to Israel as they're in Egypt to bring about his promise to make them a huge, great, strong nation. And now we're going to get to this story of Moses and Moses coming onto the scene. And so we're going to do a couple of things today. One of them is we're going to ask a few questions before each uh, point. And so before we get to our first point, I want you, um, we'll read this together, and then I want you to answer these two questions with the person sitting next to you, okay? What type of people saved Moses? And in one word, what characteristic would you use to describe these people? So let's go ahead and let's read. Starting in, let's start in verse 20, just, just to remind ourselves of something. Uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So just picture the terror, the pandemonium, basically giving free reign to any Egyptian who sees a Hebrew boy to pick him up throw them into the river. Imagine living in that sort of a scenario. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the, child, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women? to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, so with the person sitting next to you, either side of you, what type of people saved Moses? And in one word, what characteristic would you use to describe these people? Go. All right, so what do you guys think? What type of women saved Moses here? What type of people? What? Royalty. Okay, so one of them is royalty. Definitely. One of them is Egyptian. Anything else? Is she the only one who has a hand in saving Moses? Elise? Um, I think it's her servant girl. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, so she, her serving girl helps her. Good. Anyone else involved? Okay, Moses's sister is involved, right, in helping to kind of provide a nurse for the new baby. Anyone else involved? I heard it. Her mom. Her mom, right? I mean, where, where would Moses be without his mom? You know. So we have. So, so, how would you answer that question? What type of people save Moses? Women. Thank you. Right? They're all women. Okay, and not only are they all women, we could add to their ranks two other women who've already been very important in the story. Which, which women have been important in the story so far? In chapter one. The midwives, right? The midwives. They were important because they went against what Pharaoh said to do, that king of Egypt said to kill these babies, and they wouldn't do it, right? Okay, so this is important that these women are involved. So we're going to get to that in just a minute. So I think that this section should be called Courageous Women. Oh, I forgot to ask the second question. <laughs> well, I think the characteristic is courage, okay? I think that the characteristic that identifies these women is courage, okay? So I'm going to get to that. Let's, let's look at that. What, what were some of the things you guys said? I can hear. It's okay if you say there's something different. Elise? Okay, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> compassion, right? All right? She has pity on this little baby. Good. Anything else? Any other characteristics come up as you see it? Kind of you, rebellious queen, or the, the daughter of Pharaoh is saving the Hebrew baby. Re, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Rebellious. Good. You can do it, Haley. I saw your hand. Do you have one or no? Okay. No. Yes. Yeah, they do. The midwives definitely fear God. And we're going to see that some of these other women do too, even though it doesn't really say it right here. Okay? Okay. So let's start with Moses' mother, okay? So Moses' mother takes this baby um, and hides it for three months. And a lot of the story, you kind of have to read between the lines, and this might be speculation, but I don't think it's that far off. Why three months? Well, when babies are first born, they cry like, you know, like, and after three months, it's like ear-piercing screaming, okay? And so <laughs> it's hard to hide that baby at three months, okay? So um, after three months, she can't hide him anymore, and so she's going to put him in a basket. Now, some really interesting things here. First of all, she's kind of obeying the king of Egypt. She's putting her baby in the Nile River. That's kind of interesting, right? Second thing is, this word for basket is a word that's been used in Genesis. It's a really important word in Genesis. It's in Genesis 6 through 8, and it's the word for ark, okay? So this basket is the same Hebrew word for Noah's ark. And that's kind of interesting because she covers it in pitch and bitumen and it says the ark was covered with pitch on the inside and the outside. Now think about what, what was the ark for? The ark was for saving, right? Saving these, uh, these people from the chaos that was going to come about there. And, and it had this cosmic significance. I think this is kind of a helpful way to think of it, okay? It has cosmic meaning like for the whole world. It's very significant for the whole world. For the ark, namely because everyone dies except for Noah and his family, right? And so maybe, just maybe, we should expect something with cosmic significance to come out of Moses being put in a little basket, okay? Um, and the act that the mother is doing is, I think, a very courageous one. 
It's this courageous act of abandoning her baby. But it takes courage to do it because she's defying, you know, the king of Egypt, and she's doing it not with the hope. I mean, this is not like um, if you guys read about people in, uh, you know, China or something abandoning their babies because they're only allowed a certain number of babies. Um, You know, this isn't like putting him in a dark alley so you don't have to see him die. This is putting him somewhere where hopefully he's going to be found and have a chance to live, okay? So by putting him in a basket in the water, you're putting him where people would come to do their laundry, where people would come to bathe. This is a common place to come to, and the hope is he'll be found, okay? Now, I'm going to contrast some of this with The Prince of Egypt, because while The Prince of Egypt movie from Disney, or DreamWorks, is, is a great movie, not all of it is completely accurate. So at this point in the movie, what happens? He floats down the river, and there's like hippopotamuses and alligators, like, oh, and he's like flipping. Well, it just says she put him among the reeds. So he may not have even floated away. I mean, it's just been like, okay, there he is in the reeds, floating right there, um, not going whitewater rafting, okay? Um, probably not. Um, so, um, so she has courage. There's a couple of places in the Bible. One of the things that we're going to talk about a couple times is how important the Exodus is for, Hebrew, for Israelites' history, the Hebrews' history, okay? Um, it's so important that it's referred back to a couple of times, and there's two places that are important. One of them is in Acts. And if you guys remember in Acts, the first martyr is named Stephen. And Stephen, when he's being martyred, he kind of tells the whole history of Israel before they kill him, okay? And so he talks about the Exodus in the midst of that. And another place is in Hebrews 11, where we have this place where... Um, the author of Hebrews gives an example of all these great people and how they had faith down through the history, okay? And in Hebrews it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So while it doesn't talk about faith here, the author of Hebrews, looking back on it, says it was because they trusted God that they hid this baby. And I think it's just a helpful piece to kind of get a picture of Moses' mother. Um, so then let's go to Moses or to Pharaoh's daughter, okay? So baby's in the basket, and, and Pharaoh's daughter, she comes to bathe in the river, she sees the basket, she sends her servant women, she takes the basket, she opens the basket, she saw the child, she took pity on the child. Um, she tells Moses' sister to go, find a nurse, and then she uh, takes the baby to, uh, to Moses' mother, the sister does, and then when she gets it back, Pharaoh's daughter names the baby. Now, what I want you to pick up here is these actions um, that she does. It's, it's, it's kind of like rapid fire. Like she comes, she sees, she sends, she takes, she opens, she takes pity. It's kind of the way the narrator tells the story. It's kind of interesting. And what makes it even more interesting is if you fast forward to verses 23 through 24 and 25. Or let's just look at 24. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, listen to this. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Do you you get the sense? you get that same kind of like rapid fire, like verbs from what God is doing? I think we're supposed to see that the daughter of Pharaoh is kind of like an agent of God, doing what God is going to do. She does what God is going to do for all of Israel. She does it to Moses. Okay? So she acts on behalf of (coughs) Moses. And as she does so, it takes courage, like um, uh, Emily said, that she's rebelling against the edict of the king. It takes courage. 
Back in chapter 1, we learned that the king had said, kill all the babies. And here, his daughter, supposedly here, the, the princess of Egypt, defies the king out of compassion for this little Hebrew boy. It also said in chapter 1 that all the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were all in dread and afraid of the people of Israel. And yet, she has the courage to do something when a little baby boy um, washes up where she is in the river. So we should see her as courageous. And then we see this sister, right? Now, we know that he has, Moses has a sister later in the book named Miriam. This might be Miriam. We don't know. It might be another sister. Um, but she has the courage to watch over her baby brother. And not only watch over him, but when Egyptian royalty takes in her baby brother to courageously go up to her and speak to her, to her, probably not in her mother tongue, probably in Egyptian, not in Hebrew, okay? Um, and, and speak to her and provide a way for this baby to be saved. Now, big sisters, this should be an example to all of you, some of you. You know, you may have just let your little brother be like, yeah, just, he's been screaming for three months. Can you just take him and keep him? Uh, we, don't, we don't want him back anymore. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. That's not the way you would act, I'm sure. Um, but she courageously acts to help and save Moses. And by doing so, she even reunites Moses with his mother for a period of time, which I think we're going to see is going to be a really important formative process for Moses. Um, later in the story here, okay? So two things to highlight from this first part. The first is the importance of women in Scripture. I think that's something that we have to point out. We have to highlight that. Some people say, well, the Bible's a man's book. It's all, like, all, all, all about men. Well, there's a lot more men that are kind of main characters in the Bible than there are women, but a lot of them are bad, okay? They're like bad examples, not guys to follow, um, there's not as many women who are bad examples. There's a couple. We got Jezebel. Um, we got the kind of like this adulterous woman in Proverbs. Um, but for the most part, women are good examples. Um, and so far in the book of Exodus, all of the heroes have been women. We've had five women, from the midwives to these three women in our passage, acting with courage in the midst of a murderous male ruler who, who's trying to kill these babies. And it's their courage that begins the liberation of the whole nation of Israel, okay? And it's in defiance of those who are in power. So I think we should see that. I think that women especially, you should take note of that, and men, that God is not selective in saying, well, a man has to do this, okay? Um, it's men, women, God works through anyone who's willing to fear him and do what he wants them to do. The second thing is that when things seem hopeless, God is at work, right? Like how hopeless would it, at this point, they've probably been in slavery for 350 years. That's a long time to be slaves. Things are looking pretty hopeless. And yet what we see behind the scenes is that God's doing something. God is working. Um, not only is God allowing Moses to be saved, God is allowing Moses to be raised by his own Israelite mother for a period of time. And then he's allowing him to be raised in the Egyptian school system, which is Acts tells us, and, and when Stephen talks about this, he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. In other words, Moses got to go to an Ivy League college 
that prepared him for what was going to happen many years later. All right? So I think that we should see God working in every little step of the process here. Well, let's look at the second point, okay? So we're going to read the second part, um, which is verses 11 to 22. And as we do that, we've got two more questions. Which people group does Moses identify with? Is it the Egyptians or the Israelites? Okay. And in one word, what characteristic would you use to describe Moses? And I'll try to let you answer before I show you mine. Let's read. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs with, to, uh, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to the father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign <laughs> land. So Gershom sounds like the word for sojourner. Sojourner means a foreigner, that you're traveling through this foreign land. It's not your foreign land. It's not your land, okay? So, with each other, which people group does Moses identify with? And in one word, what characteristic would you use of Moses? Go. All right, so which people group does he identify with? Who does he identify with? Israelites. The Israelites, right? Where do we see that, Joseph? He kills the Egyptian when he's putting hard burdens on the people. Right, so he, he kills an Egyptian to defend a Hebrew, and it says he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, right? The Israelites are his people. That's how he identifies with them. Now, that's really amazing, right? Because he's grown up in the Egyptian court. So, let's talk about Prince of Egypt one more time. Is that what the Prince of Egypt makes it look like? No, Prince of Egypt makes it look like, oh, I'm like this ruler of Egypt. And then he has that whole moment where he like finds the hieroglyphics of the babies being thrown into the water. And he's like, oh, who am I? Did you really do this to me? Right? And, and, and Miriam confronts him, if you guys remember that part. And she's like, you're one of us. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I am. So, no, not really the way it works. He knows from the beginning that these are my people, which I think comes from that period of time when his mom was raising him, nursing him, okay, as a little kid, all right? So she probably had him for a number of years and saying, this is who you are, Moses. You're an Israelite, okay? So he still identifies as an Israelite. In one word, what characteristic would you use to describe Moses? Bold. Yeah, we got boldness for sure. Elise? Courageous. 
Courageous. He also has courage. Good. Fear. Uh, like he runs away because he's afraid. Yeah. Compassion. He has compassion on these guys who are being beaten up, these fellow Hebrews, right? Well, the word that I used is just. Moses, the just Israelite, right? So Moses has this sense of what is right and what is wrong. And when he sees injustice, he acts on it, right? So he goes after the Egyptian who's beating the Hebrew and he kills him. He's so struck by the injustice of it. And then he sees two Hebrews and he goes and he confronts them. And there's one more interaction, which is at the well, he sees these girls, shepherds, being pushed out of the way by these other shepherds and and he's injustice and he acts on it, okay? So let's look at these three interventions of Moses because of what he sees as an injustice. So first we've got the intervention of the Egyptian and the Hebrew. Um, He sees the injustice and the word that's interesting here is that Moses struck down the Egyptian. Now, when you read the Old Testament, you want to pick up on words like this because the author is careful in the words that he uses and oftentimes he uses that word in other places to kind of hint at certain things, okay? So Moses strikes down the Egyptian and so the first thing I do when I read this, I think, hmm, struck down. That's an interesting way of saying it. You know, he's like killed, could have said, you know, murdered him. Um, why does he say strike down? Well, if you look at the word strike down, it shows up again in Exodus 12, 29, and it says, God struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. So Moses is, is doing something that God is going to do later in the story. He's striking down the Egyptians. And I think what we should see is that God is starting to raise up in us Moses a redeemer, a savior, someone who's acting on his behalf, that's doing what he wants to do, okay? So that's intervention number one. Intervention number two, we've got the Hebrews struggling with one another. And he goes and he confronts them. How does that one go for him? Not too great, right? Not too great. Because he thought that they would be understanding. Actually, in Acts 7, again, Stephen, looking back at the story, here's what Stephen says. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. That's how Stephen remembers this story. So Stephen looks back on it and says, <coughs> Moses thought that they would understand God was raising him up for a purpose, which means that Moses must have had some sense that wow, I'm the only Hebrew boy, supposedly, maybe, who who is allowed to live through this terrible period. I've been raised up in the Egyptian courts. God's going to use me for something big for this people, right? But they didn't understand. Instead, they say, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And I think it's a really key question. I think it should, you know, when we hear something like that, we should sit back and be like, well, who did make him the king and the judge or the prince and the judge over them? And what we should see is behind the scenes here, who is doing this? Well, this is all God at work, right? The biggest events of history turn on the tiniest of hinges, and God's the one who's at work to save this one little boy and orchestrate all these things to save the people and, yes, to make him the prince and the judge over them. Um, Well, Moses is afraid when he knows that the king finds out about it, and so he runs away to Midian, um, which is the wilderness, okay? That's, that's where Israel's going to go very soon once they go through the Red Sea. Then we have the third intervention. We've got the shepherds and the women, and Moses sees the injustice, and he drives them away, and there's another really interesting phrase here. 
And it's the interesting phrase that the women, when they tell their dad what happened, they say that this Egyptian has delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. Well, if we keep reading in Exodus, we see that God says in the very next chapter here, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And in Exodus 18, it says that the Lord had, uh, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And so again, we see Moses has kind of like got this, the heart of God in him. And he's doing what God is going to do for all of Israel very soon. All right. For the sake of time, we'll jump on to the last point here, okay? So last point. Um, well, well, actually, let me end with this. So yesterday, oh yeah, something else that's interesting is Moses is kind of like reenacting what's going to happen to Israel, right? So Israel, Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill you. I want to kill you. I want to kill your baby boys, right? And Israel's going to eventually flee from Egypt through uh, water to the wilderness, right? And at the wilderness, they're going to meet God at Mount Sinai. And what we see happening with Moses here is Moses is, you know, supposed to be killed, but he's not. He, he is put in the water, um, and then the killing comes back into the picture because Pharaoh's mad at him. And, and so he flees where? To the wilderness. And what's going to happen in the wilderness in chapter 3? He's going to meet God at the burning bush, okay? So he's kind of like going through the story himself before he's sent back to bring <laughs> Israel through that same story. Um, And another thing to be, just, just to think about for a second is this. Why is it that God takes Moses out of Israel at this time instead of just letting him stay and, and, and keep doing what he's doing, right? So Moses kind of has this like fire and fury in him, doesn't he? He's mad and he's got this sense of justice and what's right and wrong and he wants to fight for his people. And, and we learn in other parts of the Bible that Moses is probably about 40 years old at this time. He's probably in his prime. He's ready to work God plucks him up out of that situation, moves him into the wilderness, and do you know how long he keeps him there? He keeps him there for 40 more years. So by the time Moses is sent back, he's, he's grandpa, he's 80 years old, okay? Why does God do it that way? Why didn't he let him do it when he was in his prime? Is there something that he wants to teach Moses during his time in the wilderness before he sends him back? All right, so last Last point is this, Exodus 23 to 25. Let's read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So here's the question. How do these verses make you feel about God? What do you guys think? How do these verses make you feel about God? Any thoughts? Makes me feel encouraged. Often, like, we'll pray, you can feel like you're just speaking more than what's hearing. But God does hear all of our words, and he hears our groans, and he delights. Awesome. So God hears, God is going to remember, God's going to respond. It's an encouraging statement. 
Is there a flip side to that, though? That might be a question you might have. Yeah. Excellent question. Wait, wait, God remembered? That usually means that like, there was a period of time where he wasn't remembering, so why did God have to remember? And how long has Israel been in slavery at this point? 400 years at this point, right? So we're supposed to basically assume that those 40 years are done. Okay, now is this magical time when God's going to finally do something. We learned back in Genesis that God was going to let them suffer for 400 years before he was going to come rescue them. 400 years, and now, now you have ears all of a sudden. You have eyes. Raises some really big questions for us. Okay, and so we're going to get into those questions in just a minute. Well, this begins with groaning, okay? So it's this time when the suffering of Israel has continued for a long time, and it's taken God a long time to respond. And so the common question when that happens for us is, why didn't God save me out of my suffering immediately? Why did God let the suffering continue? And so there's, I don't have like a solid one-sentence answer for you, but I have some things that this story ought to make us consider. And the first thing is, in this story, while there was suffering, was God not at work? No, he was at work, right? He was at work 80 years before this point, saving Moses. And he was at work all the years before that, causing the people to be fruitful and to multiply even in the midst of of their suffering, right? So we can't say, based on Exodus 1 and 2, that God had forgotten about them. God was carrying out his covenant the entire time that this is going on. So maybe God was waiting for something. Is God waiting for this Pharaoh to die? Right? It's kind of interesting. During those many days, the king of Egypt dies, and then the cries come up to God. So is God waiting for something like this to happen? Or is God doing something in Moses for those years that he wants to do through Moses before the time has come? What makes God's timing God's timing? That's basically the question. And the answer is, we don't know. We don't always know. We don't have God's mind. We don't know why God waited until this thing happened rather than this thing. But some of the things we keep in mind is that perhaps God has something bigger in mind than you realize. Because oftentimes when we're suffering and we want God to act, we want God to act for me. Like, I want you to save me right now. But when God looks down, he doesn't just see you, does he? He sees all of creation. He sees all these Israelites. And so sometimes our interactions are so intertwined in some ways that God is waiting for the right moment for the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. Okay? Maybe he has something bigger in mind than you realize. Um, and maybe God is accomplishing something in the waiting that wouldn't be accomplished if he were to just jump in and save you. The Bible tells us that time and again that God is at work in our suffering. That even when times look bad to us, that God is still working. Most recently, we see it at the end of Genesis with Joseph. Right? So Joseph, sold into slavery. That's pretty bad. Sold into slavery, sent down to Egypt, leaves his family forever. And Joseph's reflection on the time... You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. At the end of the day, it, it was rough. Sitting in a prison was rough. But now I see God had a plan for decades and decades and decades of suffering. And here it is. It's for me to save all of my brothers in this family. All right, so even though we don't know why God's timing is God's timing, we should see that he has a purpose. Well, whatever the reason for waiting, the time has come, 
uh, for something to change. So some of you use the analogy that this is like the fullness of time. This is, this is that point in time when God is ready to do something. He hears, he remembers, um, and he's going to see, and he, and he knows, and he's going to act. And I think that what, what, what we should see here, I call this the storm is brewing. A storm is brewing here. The time has come. These words, Ryan, like, like remember, all of these words in their proper context, properly understood, indicate action. Okay, so when it says God sees, it doesn't mean that he was blind before that. And when it says God heard, it doesn't mean that he was deaf before that. And when it says God remembered, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten. And when it says that God knew, it doesn't mean that he didn't know before this. All of these are Hebrew words that are used to indicate action. And we've already seen some of them. So for example, in verse 11, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. That doesn't mean that for 40 years, Moses had never seen slaves, like never seen his people in slavery. It means he looked and he saw them with an intent to do something about it. And he went out and he did. So here, when we read this, we should see action is about to happen. God sees, God hears, God remembers, God knows their suffering, and he's about to do something about it. Let's just end with a couple of application points here really quick. We've already said this shows us that no situation is hopeless. This shows us that anyone can be part of God's plan for redemption if they courageously side with God. And so now let's talk about suffering. What are you suffering right now? What have you been groaning under? What are you crying out about? And this doesn't even mean crying out to God. What are you just just complaining about? Like, I just wish this was over and I was done with this. What are you crying out about? When will the time come for God to save you? Well, oftentimes what we cry out to God about, what we groan about, are not our deepest problems. We need to recognize that. Oftentimes we cry out and we groan about things that really do matter, but they're not the deepest things. We don't want our parents to get divorced. We want to get into the college of our choosing. We want to be noticed by some cute guy or cute girl. We want to pass geometry class. We want someone to sit with us at lunch. I'm not making light of any of those. Those are weighty, heavy things. But they aren't our deepest needs. They aren't our deepest problems. Our deepest problem is that we're sinners that are separated from God and we are slaves to sin. This is why the Exodus has such importance for you is that, yeah, they were slaves and you think, man, I've never been a slave. Yes, you have. Yes, you are. You're a slave to sin. You can't stop. And it's killing you. And it's leading you to eternal damnation. This is what we should be crying out to God about. And if we ask, when will God save me from slavery to sin? The reality is we don't need to look into the future. We don't need to say, when, God, will you do this? We look in the past because God already has. Here's what Galatians 3, 4, 3 through 5 says. It says, in the same way we also when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be received adoption, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when we read this passage, we should 
be encouraged, not only that our God is a God who hears and remembers and sees and knows our present needs, but even more so that God has heard, that God has remembered, that God has foreseen what we would need 2,000 years later, and God has already provided us Jesus Christ, death on the cross, so that we could be freed from slavery. So we have been saved from our deepest need and our deepest problems. Um, We are out of time there, but I would love to talk for just a minute uh, another time on why this salvation um, gives us hope in the midst of our present problems. But we'll save that for another day. All right? Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you that our salvation is past and not future. That we have been saved and that ought to empower us in the midst of our present suffering. And I pray that you would allow it to do so this week. In Jesus' name, amen.